please stand with me for the reading of God's word? Today's scripture lesson comes from Ephesians 1, 15 through 23. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Katie. And good morning, friends. It's great to be with you this morning. Uh, John, apologies for interrupting the sermon series you started last week, Old Testament <laughs> Old Testament Prophet Radio. Uh, it sounds like a great idea. You know how you've gone on a road trip with friends, and as soon as you get on the road, somebody has like, I've heard this new song, and I'm obsessed with it, and we need to start and listen to it right now. And so if you indulge them, you give them the aux cord, they play their song, they get it out of their system, and then you get back on the road. This is kind of like that. So uh, <laughs> we're interrupting uh, Old Testament Prophets to uh, spend time on this piece of Ephesians that I've just been obsessed with lately. And I so desperately want to share it with you. It's been a joy just in my heart as I've thought about you all and coming here and thinking about uh, what the church needs. And I think this text speaks a lot to that. So before we press play, can you pray with me as, as we dive into God's word? Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God who speaks and who's made yourself known to us in your word, but also in your son. Would your Holy Spirit come to us and help us to see Jesus today, that we might better understand your grace and its implications for our lives. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. So do you remember in high school and college those odd jobs that you had in the summers? You know, you needed to kill a little bit of time, make a little bit of money, but you weren't going to necessarily do something that was like on track for where you wanted to be in life or you know, do something that would get you a step further in your degree program. For me, my odd summer job for about six years was I worked at a golf course, uh, which meant that I would wake up super early, mow grass in the dark. If you cut a straight line in the dark, that's bonus points. Uh, but then I would spend the daytime hand watering greens so that, the, so that they wouldn't dry out. And when I learned to hand water greens, I was taught this technique called syringing where you contort the hose in such a way where the single stream of water breaks itself up into a spray. That way, when you water the green, uh, when you bring water to the green, it doesn't hit the, hit the dry part of the green and then run off to another part of the green. Rather, you, you break it up into a spray so that the water hits the driest parts of the green so that the water can go into the dry parts and bring life to the dead grass. Now, as an aside, I didn't know putting your thumb over the, the, the hose was such a technical term, syringing, but now you can sound smart. <laughs> So we, we learned how to syringe because it's one thing to bring water to a dry place. It's another thing to work the water in such a way that it gets into the dry and dead parts of the ground in order for life to spring up out of it. And as we've read this passage in Ephesians 1, 
Paul is doing something like that in this, in this text. At the beginning of Ephesians, he begins with this outburst of praise and thanksgiving where he is giving praise to God the Father for the adoption that we have in Jesus Christ through the redemption from his blood that has brought us an inheritance in the Holy Spirit. This sentence that begins the book of Ephesians is overwhelming if you took the time to linger over the words and to really unpack what they mean. And so Paul, I think, senses as he begins this letter that when we hear all of these remarkable treasures that are ours in our God, that he, he needs to slow down for our benefit so that these things can, can get into the dry and dark places of our souls. And so he changes his tune. He changes his technique. He moves from praise into prayer, from theology and doxology into petition and prayer for the people of God. Because I think he, he has this intuition for his listeners, for, his, for the readers of the letter, where where he, he goes up to them and he says, if, if, if all of these things are true, that if we have an, uh, a redemption and an adoption and an inheritance in God, then why am I still anxious and unsure about the future? Why am I still dissatisfied in ways that I just can't put my finger on? Why uh, do I find myself so easily discouraged and, lose, and losing hope? If, if these things are, are true, then why do I still feel this way? See, having jumped out of the gate with a hose, Paul is uh, switching up his technique. You see verse 15 starts off by saying, you, you see, for this reason, for this reason, Paul is changing his technique. He's syringing so that these truths can seep into our, our souls. And so as Paul shifts gears, I want us to see something that Paul is praying for for the church. That's something that Paul is praying for, not just for the church in Ephesus, but by extension, he's praying for us, for, for the church here in Madison and throughout the world. And so I don't have an elaborate outline, but I do have one question that I want us to wrestle with in our time together. And that question is, what does Paul pray that we would have? What does Paul pray that we would have? What is Paul praying for the church that we would experience together? And so in order for us to know what exactly Paul wants us to know, it, it's helpful for us to break down this, this passage and really get to the kernel or nucleus of Paul's thought. In the Greek, in the original language, this is actually one sentence. This is one big run-on sentence in the original language. And so if you cut through all the clauses and turns and, and things in the sentence, I think you would settle on this germ of a sentence. It would be, I pray that you would know him. I pray that you would know him. In other words, Paul is praying that we would know God. He, he would say, Paul is saying that, if, that if, you, if you actually know God, if you don't just know facts about him, but if you really, truly understand and know God, then everything about your life will change. Um, everything will, will uh, these treasures that we talked about, about adoption, about inheritance, about redemption, you'll understand these things more fully and it will transform your heart. And so uh, Paul's, Paul's prayer for the church is that we would know God. And you know what we could say 2,000 years removed from this passage? Paul, did you know that there is this amazing in invention called the internet? where you know how it was hard in the first century with the church being underground and not many people being able to read and not very many copies of the scripture being available. Did you know that there's going to be this invention that throws information in such a way where everybody can access it? And, you know, the Internet will, dis will, will, will resolve all disputes about what is true and what is right, and, you know, we'll all know what it, what it means to know God. Well, that's not what Paul was intending. Uh, this is not the kind of knowing that Paul is is wanting to get at see paul isn't saying that we should simply learn facts about god he's saying that we should know god uh in a deeper more full sense that 
that there, when it comes to knowing God, there, there are things that you should know, so there are facts involved, but it's not the end of the journey. Knowing God is, is knowing more than just facts about God. You see, Paul isn't praying for us to be satisfied with a Google search level of information about God, but if we're honest, how many of us have settled for that kind of relationship with God? One of the dangers of living in our digital age is that uh, it's the temptation for us is that we're, we're only tempted to know things about God or to, or to offload our knowledge about God and just you know, leave it to our smartphone to ask the question rather and, and, and just settle for the answer rather than really wrestling with God and with his word to understand things more fully. Uh, but not only is there the danger of, of checking out because of the digital world that we live in, it's also a danger because we're, we're tempted to know other people's experiences about God rather than having firsthand en- encounters with God on our own. It's easy for us in this age of information that we can settle for knowing about God through our favorite celebrity preacher or, or this podcast or this blogger or this book that we've, that we've read, that we, we settle for the vicarious Christian life, that rather than knowing God personally for ourselves, we settle for, for other people's experiences of God, which aren't bad, but but they're not yours. God has so much more to give you than somebody else's experience of grace and of Jesus. And so Paul wants us to, to really dive in deep and know God. And, and so can we have a little bit more self-awareness chat? Because being in a, in a town like Madison, where there are a ton of people pursuing graduate degrees, PhDs, highly educated city, very intellectual, uh, also being in the Presbyterian tradition of which Res Pres is a part, like our temptation is just to settle for facts about God to categorize and catalog and systematize our whole information about God and then just settle for, for the absolute certainty that comes with us having figured God out and having this box that God sits neatly in. And maybe you grew up in a church like that where you were told exactly what God was like and you found that to, to actually be suffocating, not liberating, but, but something that was suffocating to you. Or, or maybe you've, you experienced this dissonance where people who knew God with such exact and precise certainty failed to live up to the goodness in the ideals that, that this God represented and, and reflected and calls his people to live out. And, and so you've, you've run from that, that, that suffocating sense of absolute certainty to, to another place, not, not, not to a place where you're searching to know God for yourself, but you've settled in this, uh, in this place of skepticism, of, of not knowing what God is like, that he's this mysterious, ethereal, Un, unnebulous, unknowable God, but, but who curiously like, doesn't disagree with anything that you believe or what our culture believes. Uh, but because, because you think that being in this place of absolute skepticism is better than being absolutely certain. And into the middle of these two extreme, ex- extremes, absolute certainty on the one hand and absolute skepticism on the other, Paul comes in to correct us. If you, if you look down at verse 17 in our passage, you'll notice that Paul prays that we would have both a spirit of wisdom and revelation when it comes to knowing God. Wisdom and revelation together. Wisdom tells us that there are things that can be known about God, that he's not this amorphous, undefinable blob, that, that there is things to be known about God, but Revelation tells us that God is a person, that the way that God reveals himself is as, is as a person getting to know another person. And so there are, are things that are, that are going to be, uh, that, that we can know about this person, but then there are going to be things that we just don't know, because how, do you truly ever know somebody fully and deeply? See, Paul is saying that the Christian life is, is, looks less like managing a library or, or indexing the internet as it does wooing a spouse 
or, or getting to know the lover of your soul. That when, when husbands and wives stand before each other on their wedding day, they don't do so as having arrived and fully exhausted the knowledge of the person standing across from them. They, they, they do you know, get to know them pretty well before they get up to that point, but, but husband and wives also hope that they have a lifetime worth of learning ahead of them, where there are more beauty and truths and things to draw out of their spouse throughout the rest of their life. Now, if that language of, of marriage sounds uncomfortable for you because maybe you're here and you're happily single or maybe you're uh, longing to be married or, or maybe you're divorced or widowed or your marriage is in a tough spot, know that Paul is just, I'm just using language that Paul will use a little bit later in Ephesians. In chapter 5, he describes our relationship to Jesus as, as a bride and a, and a groom, that, that as we stand before Christ and looking into his eyes, there aren't there things in, in Jesus that you want to draw out uh, none of us will ever arrive at a point where we say we sufficiently know Jesus to the fullest extent that we can know him. There are going to be things that we want to draw out of him throughout the rest of our lives. And so the heart of the Christian faith is an invitation to come and know a person. Not, not settle for just information about, about someone or something, but it's, it's to come and know a person. It's to come to know God, a, a person whose mind and will are inscrutable at times, absolutely, but whose goodness and character are recognizable and unmistakable. The, the, Paul is praying that, that we would come to know God a, a, as he is in the person of Jesus. And so my, Paul's challenge, I think, for us is to not settle for the vicarious Christian life, but to come and know Jesus for yourself. So Paul is praying that we would know God more fully. And so I, I want to give us uh, uh, some ways that we can do that practically, tangibly this week and throughout the summer. And the, the best place for us to start is to go to the place where God has spoken, and that, his, that is his word. And so this summer, if you haven't, uh, if you haven't set a set a, a plan or, or you don't have any intention to read God's word, my challenge is make make some time this summer, every day, every week, to spend time with God in His Word. To he- let God speak to, to to your heart and to see what what He would say to you. And then whatever He says to you in that in those moments in the Word, take those things that are that are true and good and beautiful and ask this question: What if I believe this truth about God to the bottom of my toes? What if I believe this truth to the bottom of my toes? How would my life actually be different if I believe what God was saying? And, and don't get up from that time in, in God's word until you've wrestled with that question, until you can feel the truth in your, in your feet. Be holistic as you ask these questions. Think about how does this truth affect my anxieties and my fears? How does it impact my hopes and my dreams? Or, or what, is this, what is this truth going to do to my relationships, whether that's with my roommates, with my kids, my spouse, my, my coworkers, my neighbors? How, how would this truth affect my attitude towards my work or my moments of solitude? Uh, how would this truth affect my commute or the time I spend on my phone and so on? And you can do this with any passage of scripture, but for our purposes, uh, there, are, there are some things here in verses 18 and 19 that I just want to take us through as, as an exercise, but really to get your, your, heart, your heart stirring for, for wanting to know God for yourself. So in verses 18 and 19, you see the three, there are three what's in this passage that Paul is praying that we would experience. He's, he's saying that first we would experience what is the hope to which he has called you. Secondly, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And then third, what is the immeasurable power, or the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believes? So Paul is saying that we would know three what's. The, what, are, what are the hope, the riches, the power? In other words, we could say that Paul is wanting us to apply this truth about God, to apply the gospel to our hopes, to our value, and to our ability. So consider, consider your hope, firstly. 
God says that because of his calling on you, and in verse 4 of, of Ephesians 1, Paul talks about what that calling is, that before the foundation of the world, that God called us by name to be his own, that before we had the chance to earn God's love or prove our worth, God set his love on you, and he's given you a hope that nothing can diminish or take away. That if, if that was really true, then, then what would that mean if you experienced that truth to the bottom of your toes? What would it think if you applied this truth to your career? Think about, uh, about the work that you do or, or about the trajectory that you see yourself on and where you want to be, that, that if you realize and, and if you understand that in, that in God you have a hope that nothing can take away or diminish, that, that nothing can shake the value of, that it's fixed and unchanging, then I mean, do you see how your career just can just be your career and not be the thing that you invest all your hope and energy and vitality into, and, and, and not the thing that you're afraid of, that if, that if you have one bad day, one bad presentation, one bad client meeting, that it will all set you back. Or if you lose out on that promotion, then, then you realize that, that, you, that your soul is still buoyant because you know that you have a hope that nothing can take away. That in Jesus Christ, you, in, a, in a sense, you have earned the ultimate promotion, that is resurrection and everlasting life that your career is freed up just to be your career, that something that you can use to enjoy and honor God with and, and to know that when the frustrations of work come, they, they're not a threat to your identity or to your hope because your hope is placed somewhere else. Or, or think about your wealth for a moment. Um, when, when the hope of your calling sinks in that you have this inheritance waiting for you in heaven uh, to be given by you uh, in Jesus Christ, that the Holy Spirit that's in you is a down payment on that kind of wealth and riches, then then your money is free to just to be your money. You can, you can give it away. You can go to sleep at night not, not worrying about the number that's in your retirement. That your, your, your grip on your, on your cash is a little bit looser because you're freed because you know that, that you have an inheritance waiting for you, that nothing that rust, that, that rust and moth cannot diminish or destroy. And so do you see how understanding your hope and your calling, it frees you up a little bit more. It helps you walk with a little bit lighter step. It takes the pressure off your shoulders knowing that in Jesus, you have a hope that nothing can shake or take away. So that's our hope. But then secondly, look at your value. Verse 18 is this really interesting verse because it, it, it talks about what is the inheritance in the saints. It, it's talking about an inheritance, but you know, it's, it's talking about God's inheritance. Paul talked about our inheritance at the start of Ephesians 1, but, it, but in this passage, Paul is talking about the inheritance that God gets. And do you know what that inheritance is? It's you. <laughs> It's you. you. You may not feel like an inheritance this morning that you're worth uh, somebody coming into. You don't feel like, like very wealthy in the sense of, of if somebody inherited you, like they would be like, oh, they're just, in, they're just inheriting problems. Um, they're just inheriting flaws and foibles. But when you understand who you are in Jesus, you understand that, that God sees you as his most valuable possession, that, that you, God sees you as the, as the thing that is worth waiting for to one day have for himself. Uh, that, that Jesus views you as, as, worth, as worth dying for and giving everything for in order to have. And when you understand that, that you're valuable to God, for not, not, not some past or future version of you, but you at this very moment in time, you are valuable to God. That changes the way that you look at yourself. So when you look, at your when you look in the mirror and you're, you're not impressed or satisfied with what you see, maybe you, you find a new wrinkle that wasn't there before, Maybe some hairs are turning gray, or in my case, hairs are falling out. Uh, when that outfit that you bought uh, doesn't fit like it used to, you know that in those moments, God sees you as valuable. God sees you as, as worthy. God sees you as, as worth dying for and, 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 
and crossing the chasm from, from heaven to earth and hell and back in order to possess for his own. God sees you as, as valuable. And, sh- and shouldn't that free you up? Shouldn't, shouldn't understanding how Jesus sees you break the, the chains of, of vanity and self-image that we're so often driven to uh, in, in our moments of, of desperation and, and longing for acceptance? Or, or consider, uh, when not just when you look in the mirror, but when you look at your neighbor, when you look at, at the other people in your life, uh, your, your spouse, your kids, your coworkers, your roommates, and when you realize that, that God sees them as valuable as well, that, that when God sees them as people who are worthy of the, of the sacrifice of the Son of God in order to possess, doesn't that change the way that you view your neighbor and, and relate to them, whether that, whether that person is a customer or a client or a child? Uh, shouldn't that change the way that you, that you relate to other people, knowing that, uh, as, as C.S. Lewis put it, that, that your neighbor is the holiest thing presented to your senses besides the sacraments themselves, that we, when we see what God has done to go to, to go lengths for our neighbor, shouldn't that drive us to love our neighbors the way that, that God loves them? So Paul, Paul talks about our hope, our value, but then lastly, consider the ability that Paul is, is praying that we would know to the bottom of our toes. Paul says that in the believer right now is the same power, the same spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Do you know that this morning that if you're in Jesus, you're powerful? You, you have a power that, that raised the dead. Think about powerful things in this world. Maybe you think about the president and the power that he wields or, or a four-star general and the, the legions of soldiers and personnel that he, that he commands. Uh, for me, I think of the sun, the S-U-N, the, the ball of fire that sits 93 million miles away that you know, burns at whatever million degrees Fahrenheit that has the power of one billion hydrogen bombs every second. You know, if you were able to harness the power of the sun, you still wouldn't be able to raise the dead. I, you still wouldn't be able to experience peace in the face of suffering. You still wouldn't be able to uh, say no to those things that deep down you, you, you actually want to say no to and, and say yes to those things that deep down you want to say yes to and were made to say yes to, that in every single follower of Jesus right now is the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, a power that transforms hearts and minds and souls and wills into, do, into, into the people that God designed us to be and the people that we deep down want to be. And so do you see that, um, that, Paul is, that, that Paul is saying that because of Jesus, our lives really can be different right now, that because Christ is risen, because that we have the Holy Spirit, we can actually live our lives differently in the present, that we don't have to wait someday to be set free from certain struggles and pains and sins, that we can experience that freedom right now through the power of the Holy Spirit, such as the power that God has given us, if we are only able to know it to the bottom of our toes. So Paul is praying that, that we would experience this full knowledge of God, that God has come to us as a person, and as we draw out truths from, from Jesus, that we experience these truths that should transform every part of our life from, from the top of our head to the bottom of our toes. And so how do we step into this together as a church family? Well, let me, let me close with just two thoughts. First, it, it's important for us to understand that this kind of knowledge that I've been talking about, uh, this kind of wisdom that, that Paul is praying that we would have, it actually can't be earned or arrived at by us. It must be given and received. And, and at the start of verse 17, do you notice how Paul prays? He says, he, he begins uh, not by asking us to do something. He, he asks God to do something. He asks God to give us the spirit. He asks God to open and enlighten 
the eyes of our souls. So, you know, that's, that's a passive activity. We don't enlighten ourselves. God has to enlighten us. And so, in other words, Paul is saying that unless God enables you to really know him, all of these things that we've been talking about, you won't be able to experience or understand for yourself. And maybe you're here now and you're just wondering, well, you know, why have we been talking about this for the last 20 minutes? If, if, if it's only that God who can come and, and open my eyes, then, you know, is it really then that Christianity is just for a certain kind of person, um, somebody who's predisposed to believe or somebody who uh, is, is more inclined to, the cer- to certain things that God likes a certain person more? Well, let me, let me just say that's not the God that I know. Uh, the God that I know is not far off. He's not hard to find. He's not withholding. Uh, in fact, he is the most generous and gracious and giving God and giving person that I've ever met. In fact, if you go to the Sermon on the Mount, one of Jesus' most well-known sermons, he talks about how his Father in heaven uh, delights to give good things to those who ask them, who, who, just, who just have the courage to simply ask for them. And so if you're here this morning and you want to know God fully, if you want to experience uh, life-changing uh, hope and value and ability in your life, all you need to do is, is talk to God. He is, he is willing and able. He is ready at this moment to hear your cries and to answer your prayers. And so my, my encouragement to you this morning is to go to him. He is the most inclusive and welcoming, and welcoming God because there is nobody who will, he would not withhold his spirit from for those who simply ask him for it. So come, ask God for, for that wisdom and revelation, and he would gladly open your eyes this morning. But for those of us who have trusted in Jesus, what's, what's our way into more fully experiencing this, these, these kinds of things? Well, we do the same thing. We pray. We go to our Father and ask him to help us better understand him and know him more. We go to God directly. And so my challenge, maybe, maybe this is something you could do this week, is to take this prayer of Paul and pray it every day this week. Pray it for yourself. Pray it for your household. Pray it for your roommates and others who are in your, who are in your life, that they might know God more fully as well. And, and, and most of all, pray, pray this for this church. Uh, wouldn't, it, wouldn't it be wonderful if, if Res Prez was a community that, that knew God deeply and, uh, and was just a, a witness to the world? Uh, in the reflection part of the Surrey Bulletin, I, I shared this quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. It, he, he writes that the Christian fellowship lives and exists by the intercession of its members for one another. I can no longer condemn or hate a brother for whom I pray, no matter how much trouble he causes me. His face is transformed in intercession into the countenance of a brother for whom Christ died, the face of a forgiven sinner. And so as Res Prez, as, as we enter into the summer, can we be that kind of church? Can you imagine how much stronger and healthier we would be as a church family if we prayed these things for one another, that we might better understand our hope, our, our value, our ability in the city of Madison and around the world. And the challenge before us is great because we will leave here and, and quickly be a, a, assaulted and assailed by, by the story of our culture, by the competing distractions that would have us take our attention and focus off of Jesus and onto something else. And so the, the challenge before us is great, but again, friends, there is a power inside of you at this very moment by the Holy Spirit given to you by the grace of our Lord Jesus that enables you to follow him in all the different places he's put you. So let's go and be that kind of people for God's glory, for the good of our city. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God who delights to give good things to your children who simply come and ask for them. And Lord, we do come and ask that you would give us more of yourself. Help us to better know you and to know uh, 
to know your grace more fully, that we might have lives that reflect your goodness and beauty to the world around us. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.